Okay, good morning. Uh, this particular lesson is dedicated to Elliot, so I'm glad he's here. When I found out your parents were going to be out, I'm like, wait, I hope they don't bring Elliot, because I'm, I'm doing this for Elliot. So, Elliot asked a very good question the other day, and I thought this would be a great time for us to talk about some... Uh, some just basic foundational things about Bible study. It's a good question, right? I'm gonna. Um, here's two versions of the question, and uh, the word in this particular case is uh, sanctification. All right, sanctification. But it's a good general question. One question would be, what does sanctification mean? So now you know this is not an algebra discussion. All right. We're not, we are finding the meaning of X, but not in a math way. All right, what does sanctification mean? That is not the question that Elliot asked. Though this is a good question. Very, it's a very important question. He asked essentially this. All right, you, you get a letter from Paul that has the word sanctification in it. All right, how would that person know what that word means? All right, um, in some cases, all right, they're definitely going to know what that means. In some cases, they might not. The question is, all right, how do you figure this out? How do you think about it? All right, and so uh, this is what we're going to talk about today. We will really start with this question. We will end with this question. We will talk about what sanctification means. It is very important for us to know that. Uh, but it is actually really good uh, from a Bible study perspective to ask this question. All right, when somebody got this letter from Peter that says in the opening uh, the word sanctification, what in fact would they mean? So that's what we're going to be. That's what we're going to be doing today. Now let's talk about ways in which you can um, think about the activity of Bible study. All right. We'll start. I will approach it top to bottom. Okay. There might be a practical application. Okay. Like for example, um, we know generally speaking what sanctification means. And so, um, actually asking, what does it mean to be sanctified? What does sanctification mean? Is actually a really practical question. You can ask, okay, Paul says um, God wants us to be sanctified. All right? How? Practical is the how. All right? You can also ask or approach this devotionally slash inspirationally. All right? When you do your Bible study, it's a very good thing to approach your Bible study and go, how do I do this? But also, you approach your Bible study with the, for the purpose of, God give me strength. God give me inspiration. All right, Not the sense of, make me a divine conduit of, of infallible truth, though that would be cool. All right? More in terms of, give me strength. Inspire me, right? in, that, in that sense. So, these are very normal things for us to do, all right? And we should absolutely be doing these. And I think, um, like when, when non-Christians, and maybe you think the same thing, when non-Christians think about seminaries, for example, seminary education, uh, I, I think they probably think that people just basically sit around and, uh, and sing and pray and, and ask these kind of questions, all right? Uh, in seminary, you do actually sing and pray and ask those kind of questions. But there's a whole lot more to it. Those things are important and good and necessary for all Christians. Um, but there is more to it. All right? So what else is there? Well, there's related to these things. All right? There's questions of theology. All right? 
what does the word sanctification means is a theology question, right? Uh, at least in some traditions, like ours, uh, sanctification often is like a heading of a chapter in a book on systematic theology. That's going to be very common. And so you can approach things theologically. And when we talk about theologically, it's related to these, for sure, but it's a little different. Usually when you think about theology, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, how does this fit in, how does this idea fit in with other ideas in the Bible? And often, how does this idea fit in with what we believe is true based on the Protestant Reformation or based on Augustine's writings? So theology can sometimes just be a more in-depth form of Bible study where you go, I see sanctification in Paul, I see sanctification in Peter. Do they mean the same thing and how do they overlap? That's a question of theology. But it can also be historical. What did Augustine think when he talked about sanctification? All right. So there is a theology part to this. The theology part to this is somewhat relevant here. Very relevant here. Somewhat relevant here, depending on the situation. All right? There's also historical study and textual study. All right? Historical meaning um, when Bible says, okay, this happened in the reign of Augustus Caesar. Okay, is that important? Who is Augustus Caesar? Knowing that is important. All right? So there's a historical aspect of things. All right? And sometimes that's super useful. All right? And also in terms of history, if you think about Paul, and you think about Acts, and you think about, all right, how we have letters of Paul in the New Testament, how are the letters of Paul ordered? Like they're in a specific order. Why are they in that order? You might know? Yeah. Length, right? Romans is the longest, all right? And it goes generally down, all right? First and second Corinthians are also very long, all right? But when you get down to the, the other letters, they tend to be very short, and so length is, is the ordering factor. Did Paul, when he wrote his letters, write them in that order, all right? I'm going to write Romans first because it's going to be the longest, all right? No, he wouldn't, right? And so there's historical questions when you approach the book of Acts and see, here's Paul going to various places, and we see letters of Paul. How do those map onto each other? These are types of historical questions. All right? Based on all of that is text-critical questions. Now, we've talked about... Um, We've talked about this before. You have a text in front of you that is an English translation of an ancient text that was written roughly 1980 years ago. All right? uh, it was copied many times. Somebody has to go through the work of putting that together. When you have so many copies, you are going to have differences. How do you get back to what is most likely the original so that we can make translations, all right? And so translations obviously would fit in there as well. Fortunately, we have lots of good English translations. To do this, of course, all right, you're going to have to have linguistic work, right? Why do we need linguistic work? Well, if you want to know what a word means, that means you're going to have to study a language. All right? Now, in the word, if we want to know what somebody, um, what would a reader, all right, if we're going to ask this question, if an English reader, all right, is reading the Bible for the first time and they run across the word sanctification, all right, what are they going to understand? 
All right? That might very well be an English question. How often is the word sanctification used? If this is a non-Christian outside of Christian circles, all right, how often are they going to run into the word sanctification? Never, right? Extremely unlikely that they will have. So that's, that's a good question to ask. That means, well, you're probably going to have to explain that word. If you're talking about Paul writing a letter to the Romans, all right, are they going to recognize that word? All right, and it's not English at that point, right? It's Greek, right? Because he wrote in Greek. So there's a linguistic aspect to it at whatever age you ask. And if you ask about the Bible, then that means, generally speaking, if you're talking about the Old Testament, it's either Hebrew or Aramaic, or if it's the New Testament, it's going to be Greek. And then there is also archaeological bits to it. And so there's really a lot. And um, I'm going to put this on the side here. Okay. And so this is very much important for the historical aspects of things. And what is archaeology, generally speaking? Studying the past, right? That's history very generally. Might be a little bit more specific in terms of archaeology. But, I mean, linguistically, archaeology is study of the past. That is totally true. When, do we, when we use the word archaeology, what do we normally mean? Like artifacts and stuff like digging stuff up. Digging stuff up, all right? You find a city, you're like, we're going to dig that thing up, see what we find. That's going to be archaeology, all right? At least that's the more technical term instead of the just general study of old stuff. All right, so seminary education actually is, is, is more here than it is here, though there's that aspect to it, all right? Now, to answer this question, all right, archaeology might have a piece of that, this is relevant, but really, this is really the main question. All right. Now I'm going to ask you. All right. If you wanted to figure this out, all right. If you wanted to figure out what would a reader of a letter having sanctification, the word sanctification in it, understand? What would you do? How would you figure this out? Only people under the age of thirty are allowed to answer. So like we were How old are you? 27. Only people under the age of 27 are allowed to answer. Yeah? <laughs> so we would use context, right? In okay. In the case of what's mentioned in the book. Because he pretty much defines it in there, talking about things you should do or things you should do that would lead to say. Can you say sanctification? There we go. Yes. Okay. And it would also depend. Like if you, for example, uh, if you read the opening of uh, First Peter, all right, sanctification is there at least at the beginning, all right, not defined really. It's just like sanctification. All right. However, many times it is. All right. So you would look at context. Okay. It's true. What else would you do? Cheating. All right. Let's say you wanted to be the person who could do this. What would you do? Find every books from that time period. And what would you do with those books? You're right. What would you do? He's given you a hint. Somebody slightly over 27 has given you a hint. If you, what would you do? What would you do with these books? Well, first, you're assuming they could read. Assuming they could read. All right. Or at least they would understand. Because you know, literacy is not 
is today is way higher than it was at the time. And so often you'd still hear literature, though, but you would hear it, not read it. All right, what would you do with that? Great, you've got oh, ancient literature, big deal. What would you do with it as a source? Use it. All right, I'll help you out. So what you would do, for example, is you would look at this ancient literature. All right, if you want to say, would somebody in Rome know what the word sanctification means? All right, you would look at this literature and go, how common does this word show up? I mean, if this word shows up very commonly, then you'd go, yes, they probably would know that. All right, if this word was coined by Paul, all right, then you'd go, probably not. All right, Paul didn't teach the Romans, right? Paul was writing to an existing church. He had yet, not yet been to Rome. And so if Paul created the term, they maybe they would have known? It would be just really hard to say. Okay. Cool. That's where you'd go. That is exactly the right first step. All right. If that's the case, then we have to think about the word. Did Paul come up with the word, though? He did not. Oh. We will find out today. All right. Because this is the question. And in all of these questions, um, we always want to ask, who's the reader? Is the reader a Jew or is the reader a pagan? All right. Sometimes that real really matter. And in this case, it matters a great deal. All right. All right. So uh, let's let's look at an example, at least, of the word sanctification. So uh, if you would turn to Romans. Actually, let's go to First Peter first, since already we already mentioned that one. All right. First Peter. First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Alright, elect exiles of the dispersion. What is the dispersion? Is that the dispersion of the current believers in Christ from Jerusalem out to the surrounding countries and lands to preach? It's, it's more a reference to the Jewish dispersion, all right? But in this case, he is, in fact, talking, he is writing to Christians. So, yeah. Basically, Christian Jews. And why are the Christian Jews in all of these places? Because of the dispersion of general Jewish communities all over the Roman world. And so, we're talking here specifically about Jews, Probably, all right? There will be some Gentiles in there as well, but there's certainly going to be Jews here. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these are all in uh, modern-day Turkey, or in that general area. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. All right? There's not really a definition here of what sanctification means. All right. If you read further, there is some very helpful stuff. All right, um, but here there is nothing. So, how would you find out? All right, how would you find out what this means? Well, first of all, you'd ask the question. All right, what is the word? All right. Now, our word for sanctification. All right. Uh, what what language does that come from? You may know. Latin. Latin. It comes from Latin. All right, sanctus. All right or sacred, both of those are, are Latin terms that come into English. Uh, the Greek roots are very different than this. Um, uh, 
Hagiosmos, all right? If you, or if you're familiar with the term hagiography, all right, we, we don't get a whole lot of hagios in the English, I don't think. Uh, but hagiosmos, this would be the word sanctification. And this word is used six-ish times, all right? By Peter and by Paul. And uh, in the New Testament, they're the only ones who use it, all right? So, the question would be, from an ancient literature standpoint, all right, just doing just what a 27-year-old Grady says to do, we would look at ancient literature, and we would look for this term. And here's the fun thing. You wouldn't find it, all right? If you look in the ancient Greeks, you're not going to find this term, all right? Maybe once, all right? I, I, have, I have not found a term or a place where this is ever used in pagan literature, all right? So, that... Raises the question, okay, if you're a pagan and you receive Paul's letter to the Romans, or, or at least heard it, are you going to have a clue what this word means? And the answer is actually yes, but we'll get there. If you're a Jew, are you going to know what this means? And the answer is certainly. All right. Why? Because this is a Jewish and Christian word. All right. The Septuagint uses this word very frequently. Now, what is the Septuagint? The Old Testament translated into Greek. All right, and so this was done several centuries before Jesus. This was the Bible text used by many Jews. All right, especially Jews that wouldn't know Hebrew or Aramaic and any of those translations, but they would know Greek, and so they would use this old translation of the Hebrew Bible. All right, this old translation of the Hebrew Bible uses this word quite frequently. All right, so you can. A Jew who is used to reading the Septuagint or hearing it said, when they see this particular word, they're going to go, oh, I know exactly what that means. All right? I know exactly what that means. And the way Paul uses it, all right, and the way Peter uses it, is not going to be far from that at all. All right? They're, Paul's and Peter's usage of the term is very much influenced by the Old Testament, as you would expect. The Old Testament is their Bible. right? And so for a pagan, though, they might not have ever seen this term, but they probably know what it means. I'll give you an example. All right, Anthony, you need to uh, go outside and work on your tannification. Right? You need to go outside and work on your tannification. I think you need to work on your tannification as well. All right. When I say this, all right, and I, and I look at Grady, I'm like, Grady does not need to work on his tannification. All right? What am I talking? Is this an English word, tannification? No, it's not an English word. Do you know what I mean, though? All right? What do, what do I mean? You need to get tanned. All right? You need to get some sun. All right? You don't need to have heard this word before for you to know what I'm talking about. The context of go outside and get your tannification on, all right, is, is you're going to understand it. And um, for the, the pagan Greeks, all right, when they see this word, they're going to go, well, that's weird, but I know what that means, all right? All right? So why? How are they going to know what this means? Well, this is all related to another word, which is agios. Okay? And this is the adjective form. What we would translate as, when you see in your New Testament, you see the word holy. All right? That's that word. Okay? Um, if you see sanctification, 
That's this word. Adjective, noun. All right? So, you look, you don't find Hagias Moss in any of your Plato, but you do find Hagias in some ancient writers. All right? For example, Herodotus. We know who Herodotus is? Ancient historian of 5th century BC. All right? So he would, for example, when he talked about this temple of Aphrodite stands in great sanctity. He's talking about a temple all right, that is separated or dedicated to, for example, Aphrodite. Or Xenophon, all right? Uh, Xenophon, also historian, also poet, quite the writer. He used it in a very similar way, all right? Or Aristophanes, all right? Now, Aristophanes is great, because I know the kids. Here's a reference that they'll get, all right? What is cloud cuckoo land? You all know this, because you've seen the movie. I don't know how to describe it, though. What is cloud cuckoo land? It's a place on the clouds. Uh-huh. A bunch of people come and build a cacophony of random funny things and only experience joy and never said Yes, anything. yes, okay. This comes from the ancient Greek writer Aristophanes. All right? He wrote a, a book called The Birds. It was a comedy. He was, he was making fun of various things. Uh, that's what you do in comedies, I guess. Um, the whole point of this is there are a few people here who are trying to talk birds into taking over their role as true gods and basically um, create a city in the sky, Cloud Cuckoo Land, and that's what he called it, Cloud Cuckoo Land. Create a city in the sky, it'll be a happy place, and take your place as, as gods and stand between us and the Olympians because you were, you were here before them. And so that's what that whole play is about. And he would use these terms, and he would talk about here, he would talk about something dedicated to a god as holy. All right? And so if you were a Greek, all right, you would know about Plato and Xenophon, all right? And you would certainly know about Plato, all right? But Xenophon, he was popular, very popular too. Demosthenes, as all of these people you would know, and you'd go, yes, I know this term, all right? And they would be using this term, because if they would go to their Greek temple, all right, they would go Hagios, all right? Now, in this particular case, this would mean this is designated for this particular god, all right? It is set aside for this, and that's very similar to the Jewish idea. The Jewish idea has more to it, all right? And uh, we'll at least talk a little bit about what's the difference between the two, all right? The Jewish idea for this is a little different, but at least as a Greek, you would certainly know all right, Hagias Moss certainly has something to do with God's stuff. All right, it would be dedicated to God in some way. All right. Now let's do go ahead and talk about a little bit of the difference at this point. All right, what are the big differences between pagan religion and Jewish religion? and Christianity, all right? One of the big differences is the Jews and the Christians were very concerned about your behavior, all right? The Greeks, sure, you know, there are certain things clearly you're not supposed to do. You know, you murder somebody, well, that's an offense against the gods, all right? You shouldn't do that. But generally speaking, all right, pagan religion was not built around, here's how you behave, all right? Except in the sense of, here's how you behave in terms of sacrificing. All right? We're going to have this festival to Athena. All right? You should give sacrifices at that time. Sure, 
that's behavior, all right? But way less in terms of don't commit adultery, all right? Though there were laws against that, though a lot of that was more how do you know if somebody, uh, if this is really your child, kind of adultery kind of questions, less so in terms of the actual sexual ethics. So Christianity and Judaism are very different from paganism in that particular kind of respect. Lots of moral rules in Christianity, Judaism, not so much in paganism, right? Huge difference between those two in that sense. And so if you're a pagan and you see Haggai's Moss, you might go, oh, we're talking about temple stuff. All right. And this is where you're going to need an education as a pagan. All right. Go, wait a minute. You don't just mean temple stuff. Oh, you mean behavior. I'm not supposed to do a number of things. Okay. All right. And this is where you would, as a pagan, definitely have to read Paul closely. You hear that word and go, I know what that means. Wait a minute. He's talking about something I'm not used to. All right? So the word is going to be a little funny in the ears for them because they don't use this term. All right? This word is not going to be funny in, in their ears. They're going to be very used to it. All right? But what is going to be different for them is how it's used. Christians and Jews will certainly approach this differently. All right? Is witchcraft bad? No, it's totally fine. No, it's wicked. That's the difference between the pagan world and Christians. Witchcraft, good or fine. Witchcraft, bad. All right? Getting a liver out of an animal, cutting it open to see what the gods think. Pagans. All right? Christians, that's nonsense. All right? Very different. All right? Same word, potentially used in this very different way of viewing it. All right. So now, if you would please turn to Exodus chapter 15. So now we're going to explore a little bit about how this word was used. All right. Because if we're trying to ask the question, what would a reader of a letter having X in it think or understand? All right. Now, if I'm reading, if we're talking about Exodus, who are we talking about here? What kind of reader? This is a Jew, or this is a Christian, a converted pagan Christian. All right? That's what we're talking about. So Exodus uh, chapter 15. All right. Verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place... O Lord, which you have made for your abode the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. All right, we're talking about this word. Which word in this, in your English translation, is probably that word? Sanctuary. All right. Now, there was a separate word for temple, and that was often used. In this particular case, all right, it's talking about a sanctified thing. And what is a sanctuary other than a Sanctified place, all right? And so if you're a Jew, you would certainly see this particular usage. You're used to sanctified sanctified places, all right? Or let's turn to Judges 
Alright, so Judges 17, 3. Let's start with 2. No, no, three. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. All right, what do you think? What's, what's, what's the word that's going to ultimately be this term that a, that a Jewish or a Christian reader would recognize? Oh, yes, this is this. What, what was that? Dedicate. Dedicated, right, right. Something that is set apart is dedicated. In this case, it's uh, the Nets translation. Not to be confused with the Net Bible. Completely different thing. This is a translation specifically of the Septuagint. By an act of consecration, I consecrated. It's that act of consecration. All right. It's, it's redundant in Greek. It's by this. Hageasmo, hageazo. All right. By this act of consecration, I consecrate. All right. And so. For the, for the Jews, all right, this is going to be very normal. You're going to see this word, and we're talking about being consecrated to God. Now, if you think about the related word, this one, all right, be ye holy, for I am holy. God says this in Leviticus, all right, be ye holy, for I am holy, all right. Who's he talking to in this case? Do you remember? Jews, is he talking to the priest, or is he talking about all the people? In that particular case, he's talking about all the people. And this right here is another one of the main differences between the Jewish worldview and the pagan worldview. All right? Not everybody in the pagan world was consecrated to Zeus. All right? You would typically think, oh, this temple, this temple is consecrated to Zeus. But since we have all these other gods, then you're going to have another temple consecrated to this thing and another temple consecrated to this other thing. You might have gifts consecrated for a... or sacred, all right, for a specific use, but since there's so many gods, you wouldn't say we as a people are constant, we are set aside for all of the gods, all right? This is different about the Jews because there's one God, all right? And God says you are to be as a whole people, not just the priests, all right? You as a whole people are supposed to be hagias. All right? As a whole people are supposed to be consecrated. And this is another sense that the pagan is going to have to be reeducated. All right? When he sees the, when he hears the Christian letter read to him, all right? Cuz a pagan is not going to think, "Oh yeah, I'm consecrated." Priests, they might be consecrated. The gift I give might be consecrated. That place that is a temple certainly consecrated me. No. One day I'll worship this god. Another day I'll worship this other god. All right, so you're not concentrated to consecrated to a single one. So this is another way that we're talking about the question: What would they think? All right, the pagan is going to have a wrong idea. All right, in this that that really Christian theology, all right, and Christian in, instruction to the pagans would have to fix. Okay, make sense? All right, let's look at some uh, New Testament uses. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. All 
not in order of writing, but in terms of order in the New Testament. This is the first occurrence of this particular word. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at uh, around verse 19. Uh, We'll start in 15. What then are we to sin, because we are not under law but under grace? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. All right. So this is already going to be different than paganism. All right. The pagan canon, all right, was Homer. All right. The pagan canon was not here's how you behave. The pagan canon was, here's some stories and myths. All right? People walking around with a book, this is how I'm going to live, would be unusual for the pagan. All right? For the Christian, if they could have a book, if they were rich enough and, and literate, all right, that would be normal and good. All right? You look to books for your behavior in Christianity. You don't in paganism. By the way, and this is also like the... A great dialogue for you to read. It's short. It's by Plato. It's called the Euthyphro. All right. He gets in an argument. All right. Where Socrates is in an argument with somebody, and Socrates is basically arguing that this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And part of his argument is essentially this: Is something good because it's good, and therefore the gods do it, or is it good because the gods do it? All right. And he's like, Well, it's because the gods do it. It's good. He's like, But all the gods are different, and they disagree with each other, and they're wicked. All right. It's a great little dialogue. You should totally read it. Um, because you can't base morality off of Homer. That would be a terrible idea. Um, so this right here is going to be different from a Christian Jewish standpoint than the pagans, when they, if they hear this. All right? Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We still haven't seen the word sanctification yet. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, and here's the term, sanctification. All right? So in other words, for Paul, all right, sanctification is not this place is dedicated to a God. All right? Sanctification is something that happens based on behavior. All right? You do these things, you follow this pattern of teaching which leads to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. All right? That is what sanctification is. Following this pattern of teaching. Uh, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? I mean, you were free with regards to righteousness. You were doing whatever. Pagan gods did not have major things for you to do. From, I mean, they want you to sacrifice, but they don't have a behavior plan for you, all right? But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, all right? And so he's talking to the Christians going, you live differently then and you're now ashamed of that. And that's good. That's very, very good, all right? But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So the fruit, which in Paul's language is clearly the spirit working in people, and obeying God leads to, ultimately, sanctification. um, Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4. 
And here's the thing about that. All right, here's the great message from Paul to the pagans. All right, and a great message for us too. All right, if we do something that's not according to God's plan, if we do something not according to what God said He wants us to do, it's is it over at that point? No, it's not over. What do you do? You repent. You change. You don't do that anymore. All right? And what happens after that? You're forever cursed. No, you're not. Obey. It will lead to righteousness. It will lead to sanctification. And it will lead to eternal life. All right? That was, that was Paul's message there. Paul was used to talking to people who did not live anything like Christians. It's fine. Repent. Repent. That's it. All right. First Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, once again, not a pagan trait. This is not really what they did. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And now, in this case, right, he's talking to pagans, right? There were Jews in Thessalonica, so someone would totally understand this. But he's going to define it. All right, for this is the will of God, verse 3, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. All right. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. All right. Second Thessalonians chapter two. So this is something he wrote after that letter. All right. He's already defined some things. Of course, he was there. Surely, Paul talked about sanctification while he was there, and so they would know the term. All right. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. All right. And there's also a use in First um, Corinthians, but we won't go to it. Let's go hang out in First Peter. First Peter chapter 1 and 2 for the rest of our time. Which is not a lot, all right? This is a really good place, all right, for us to emphasize the difference between a pagan view and what we actually believe in terms of this. We read before the beginning, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right. So, sanctification. And here's one of the, uh, one of the, the unfortunate things of reading translations. All right. We see the word sanctification, all right? But when we see the word holy before, all right, we might ask, does, what's the relationship between these two, all right? Because in English, there is no linguistic 
connection between those two. All right. In Peter, in First Peter, it's 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 all these roots. And so if you read this, if you read verse two, you're going to see this. And when you see this later on, you're going to immediately connect them. Right? Because it's all the same language. In English, it's sort of like. Um, the word justified and righteous in English. It's confusing, right? Because we think of those as, what's the difference between those two? And they're the same term. It's just in English, we're weird. All right, so um, let's skip down a little bit for time's sake. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, 1 Peter 1, 13, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the Leviticus passage. All right, This is talking about in their food, food laws in that particular case. Talking to the entire people. All right? Not just the priests. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct, your, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Right? This is, once again, probably talking paganism here. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Alright? That is, that is sanctification. Alright? Doesn't say the word there. That is sanctification. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart since you have been born again not of a perishable seed but of an imperishable seed. And go jump to uh, chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. All right. Once again, ethical instruction, not necessarily what Homer's for, you know. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, and by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This very different than paganism. All right, all right. That temple is sacred to Aphrodite. All right, that temple is sacred to Zeus. Paul, Peter here is saying, you are that temple sacred to God. Not a pagan idea, but there's pagan analogies. They go, oh. Oh, well that's, well, that's extremely different. All right. And also different than the paganism, world of paganism, not everybody's a priest there. All right. Even, even in the Old Testament, not everybody's a priest. Only a, a, a select few are a priest. You've got you know, a twelfth of the people that are in the, the clan of the Levites. Okay. This is different, even for the Jews. All of you are priests. All right. All of you are sacred. All of you are set apart. All right. And so this would be this is new revelation. This is something even different between Christianity and and paganism. 
Alright? Verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Alright? Okay. So, in terms of the question, alright, would a reader reading Romans for the first time, a pagan, what would he think when he sees the word sanctification, or hears the word sanctification? He is going to know this definitely means dedicated to a god. Alright? If this is a pagan, then he's going to miss Right, unless he reads context. He's going to miss a lot of the other stuff that's going to be unique to Jewish, to Jewish theology and Christian theology. All right? And that is something that we know to be true, which is we are all dedicated all right, to God. What does Paul say? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. All right? Temple, that's sanctification language. That's set-apart kind of language. All right? Does this answer your question, Elliot? Okay, cool. So this is really the process you'd go through. And, you know, as, you know, when's the best time to learn a foreign language? Now. All right? The best time really is to grow up around it. All right? The second best time is now. All right? And so, if you're young, you've got lots of time. There's lots of disciplines that you can and do have time to get into as a part of your Bible study. Not only just the practical and the devotional, but also linguistic, historical, text critical. Go learn some fun languages. It's cool. All right. And you also, by the way, if you learn all of these languages, you get unfair advantages at, words, at games like Balderdash. It's super handy. All right. And it helps you in the SATs, too. But in general, there is a realm of study. All right. If you go to a seminary, uh, then they're going to generally have a set of courses that are going to send you down this route because... And this is the kind of stuff that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so seminaries know, here's the general kind of education. Yes, there is behavior education that, we, that you do talk about in seminary somewhat, all right? but it's really more of the other stuff. It's the historical, archaeological, theological, text critical, that kind of stuff. But if you don't want to go to seminary, there's plenty of books. All right? And if you ever want book recommendations, let me know. I will totally give book recommendations. Or maybe even read one with you if it's good enough. So anyway, so that's, that's how you would answer that question from a methodology standpoint. Any questions, thoughts? Okay. Bible study is an historical discipline, all right? It's, it's like puzzles. That's, that's what history is. Right? You think history, I mean, when you, when you take history in high school all right, or middle school, you think, oh, history is reading this textbook and memorizing these dates and facts. All right? That's not, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great place to start. When you think about, oh, I'm going to go to seminary to study Bible history. I'm going to sit around. I'm going to read. All right? I'm going I'm to read some stuff and learn some dates. All right? uh, that's not actually how it works. Um, what you do is you typically go beyond that and go, all right, we say that this thing happened at this date. How do we know this thing happened at that date? They say that this word means this. How do we really know that this word means this? What skills do I need to go look up in 
Xenophon and Plato and find all these old Greek words that happen before the New Testament so I can find out if they would have even known what this word is. That's the kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's actually more interesting than let's read some things and memorize some dates. It's more like, a con- it's basically a constant puzzle is what it is. And so if you like puzzle, yeah, historical study could be fun. So memorizing the dates is good. But there is more to it. If anybody wants to talk about this more, we'll be here for lunch today. So we'd love to talk about it more. Uh, For now, let's be uh, dismissed so we can go next door. Um, Will you pray for us, Anthony?